With everyone looking to shrink their bill these days, Dunn Stores gives you new ways to save on your shop with double savers. First, you'll save in the aisles when you fill your trolley with fantastic low prices across thousands of great products. Then, you'll save again at the till with our 10 or 50 grocery voucher. Shrink your bill with double savers, new from Dunn Stores. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tony Hillerman's haunting tour of terror. The Blessing Way. Starring Ed Nelson. Barbara Anderson. And Ty Andrews. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. System presents the Zero Hour. Sponsored in part by State Farm Insurance and the makers of Beechnut Chewing Tobacco. This is the Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. Dr. Bergen McKee, anthropology professor, had been busy doing his homework. An old Navajo woman had told him stories about wolves and witches. Though as a scientist, he needed documentation. So he set out to prove his theory, that superstition arises from fear. In short, witchcraft is a scapegoat for those who cannot explain away their woes rationally. Dr. Bergen McKee went to an abandoned grazing ground and came across five dead rams, their throats slashed. Coyotes, he conjectured. But how could a relatively small animal scale a six-foot fence? And where was his colleague, Dr. Kenfield? Why hadn't he returned to camp? And why was there a letter from him signed John, when his name was Jeremy? Dr. Bergen McKee has several questions for which there are no scientific answers. And he has a fear. Irrational, perhaps, but real nonetheless. He's beginning to get the feeling that something is wrong in Many Ruins Canyon. Something dreadfully wrong. The Blessing Way resumes following this word. Here's a tip from your Better Business Bureau. Properly cooked vegetables add interest and enjoyment as well as nutrition to a meal. Cooking only long enough to make the vegetable tender tends to preserve more flavor and better texture than prolonged cooking. And when you buy vegetables, demand freshness. Check the characteristic signs of freshness, such as bright, lively color and crispness. Handle produce carefully. Someone must pay for vegetables lost by rough handling, and in the long run, it'll probably be you. Incidentally, don't buy just because of low price. It doesn't pay to buy more vegetables than you can properly store in your refrigerator or you can use without waste. Most vegetables can be stored for two to five days, and it's really penny foolish to buy fresh vegetables affected by decay. 
because even if you do trim off the decayed area, rapid deterioration is likely to spread to the salvaged area. A few cents extra for vegetables in good condition is a good investment. The wet owl had flown so close to my face that I needed all my powers of self-control not to cry out. Something out there had frightened that bird, and owls are not easily frightened. I studied the worn outcroppings of sandstone across the canyon, straining to hear. I felt like a young child, afraid of the dark, the unknown. An irrational fear, I thought, but perhaps not. I could think of nothing that had happened to this point that made any sense. One dead man with sand in his lungs, five dead rams with their throats slashed, then a wrong name signed to a simple note. So why be logical now? I moved cautiously away from the tent, back into the darkness, climbing slowly over small boulders, carefully skirting larger ones, until I reached the pocket of water-cut rock directly under the oak of a hanging cliff. The light of the climbing moon had moved halfway across the canyon floor. Nothing stirred. What I scanned was a quarry of immense, motionless, brooding quiet. Then I caught a motion. I stared until my eyes were burning. A sinister shape half hidden by juniper. A boulder? No. A head. A dog's head. And it was moving again, inching slowly out of the shadows into the moonlight. First a muzzle, then the head, its ears upright, the mouth hanging unnaturally open. I rubbed my eyes to be sure. It was definitely a dog's head, unusually high, unless he were perched atop a ledge. Suddenly there was motion again, and the dog became a man. A large man with a wolf skin over his shoulders, the empty skull atop his own head. He dipped into the moonlight for a split second, and then disappeared in the shadows. Was it a man, or was it really a wolf? No, it was most assuredly a man running swiftly toward the campsite. He held something in his right hand, something metal that reflected the moonlight. A long barrel, then an ammunition clip, a machine gun... It was a man in wolf's clothing, stalking what he assumed to be a slumbering sheep. He was stalking me. Now, what's he doing now? He was in plain sight, no longer making any effort at concealment, fooling with my truck. I was suddenly struck by the wild hope that he would just jump in and drive off, nothing more than a common thief. But no, he was going nowhere, nor was I. It was obvious the man had in some way disabled the truck... My only means of escape now was my own two feet. I touched the sandstone walls of the pocket I had chosen as shelter. They were smooth and steep. If I could only wiggle my way up through the crevice. But how could I manage that without making a noise? The man, or wolf, whatever he was, had gone into the tent. I could see a flashlight beam through the canvas. He'll see my notes. He'll know who I am. If he doesn't know already... Should I make a run for it now? Just take off across the canyon floor and hope to dodge a hail of machine gun bullets. Silly thought. There wasn't time to act. He was outside the tent again. No more than 50 yards away and facing this direction. 
looking at precisely the spot in which I stood. Dr. McKee? Bergen McKee? I need to talk to you about Dr. Canfield. John's hurt. He needs help. The man's words repeated themselves, ricocheting off the canyon walls, driving home all of my worst fears. He referred to Dr. Canfield as John. He called me by name so he knew who I was. But who was he? All I knew was the man standing there in the darkness, this man in the wolf skin brandishing a machine gun, this man who had stalked me like an animal had come for one reason and one reason only, to kill me. We're number one. We're the largest company, and uh, you don't get to be the largest company unless you're doing a little extra for people. Agent Bill Rich of Logan, Utah, explains why State Farm Mutual is the world's largest car insurer. This is what the consumer feels, and you know that if a consumer feels State Farm is number one, it's got to be on two things, service and price. And if you're not uh, competitive in both of these areas and do the job, uh, the customer is not going to rate them where they have. We're number one. We only got there because we were most competitive or as competitive as anyone and because we're there to serve. Service and price. That's what car insurance value is all about. And there are two good reasons to see your nearby State Farm agent now. Like a good Turn to our story in a moment. Hello. My real name is Florencia Vicenta de Garcias Martinez Cardona Moss. No, it's not a new rock group. I'm known professionally as Vicky Carr. But my real message today sings out good news for all of you. A new federal aid program to provide education and training after high school. Especially if you don't have the money for it. It's called Basic Grants and helps provide money for full-time students entering for the first time a college or university, vocational school, technical institute, or a hospital school of nursing. It helps you pay for tuition, books, and other expenses. Basic Grants makes it possible now to prepare for the special vocation or career you've been hoping for. And best of all, it's not a loan. That's right. You don't have to pay it back. So apply right away. Simply contact the school or college you're planning to enter or post office or write Basic Grants, Box 84, Washington, D.C. Buena suerte, mis amigos. Suddenly, the man ran across the canyon bottom the wolfskin dangling from one hand. But I knew I was far from being out of danger. The man would surely climb to higher ground in order to improve his vantage point. From up high, he'd be able to see the entire canyon and me. Now was my chance. While he was moving, so could I. I worked my way steadily down the canyon, keeping close to the sheer sandstone wall. Finally... I reached the bottom where dense brush grew in massive clumps from the muddy soil. I found a, a small opening underneath one bush and squeezed in silently. Then for the first time in hours, I shut my eyes. I hadn't heard a thing for who knows how long. I had lost touch with time. 
All I knew was it was dark and the stars were out. Was the man gone? I had waited for what seemed like a full hour. And then moved. I crouched in the shadows, listening... He really was gone. But how far? And why? Then it came to me. If that lunatic had gone to all this trouble to learn who was living in the tent, he would also know of Ellen Leon. The letter announcing her impending arrival was on the table. The wolf. The wolf. He would only have to wait for her. Well, I'd have to do the same. I decided the hell was self-preservation in the sedentary academic life. If I was going to get killed, I might as well do it in style. I no longer had the faintest hope that the morning would bring Jeremy Canfield driving up the canyon, but it would bring Ellen Leon. I took one deep breath, let it out slowly, then sprinted across the sand to the south wall. I had to get as far and as high as I could and find a place where I could watch the floor of the canyon. I'd wait there to intercept the car and Helen Leon. I was making good progress, having scaled a third of the way up the south wall. There was a, a large boulder up ahead, surrounded by enough sandstone to afford me a blind. It would be a perfect viewpoint. Only it was so dark, I, I could barely see my way. It must have been nearly dawn, the darkest time of the day or night. The moon was down, and now the only light of all was from the distant stars. Now, I was only five feet away, but there was a, a gap, five feet of space I'd have to get across. It couldn't have been more than a ten-foot drop. I could see the stars reflected in a, a puddle of collected rainwater on the rocks below. I, I reached out and felt the rough bark of a, a tree limb. I held on to it with both hands and... I had fallen flush on my face, but had gotten one hand down to break my fall. I scrambled to my feet. I was out in the open. Suddenly there was a roaring in my ears and a screaming pain in my hand. The lights went out. When I regained consciousness, the sounds inside my head were gone, but not the searing pain in my right hand. I looked at it and saw that the little finger was bent grotesquely backward. The complete dislocation. Then I realized what had happened and where I was and what was at stake. The dawn had arrived. Ellen Leon would soon appear, and that madman was up there somewhere. I tried to pull my finger back into place, but the pain was too much. I rolled over and looked at my reflection in the pool of trapped rainwater. I looked to sight. The skin had been scraped from the right side of my cheek when I fell. Two days' growth of beard had sprouted, and my hair was caked with mud. With my left hand, I tried to wash the dirt and dried blood from my face. 
I was moderately successful, but nevertheless, Ellen Leone was be confronted by a grubby man with a torn and dirty shirt, hardly an appearance to inspire confidence. Well, that finger, you would have to hide it from her. Because what I had to say to her, improbable as it would seem, was the truth. There was an insane man dressed like a werewolf somewhere in the canyon, and he meant to kill us both. Then I heard it. A car was coming. From the echoes, I knew it was already in the canyon. Maybe it wasn't Helen Leon at all. Maybe it was Jeremy. And the whole thing was all just a bad joke. Maybe it was the wolf coming back to finish me off. Then I saw it round in the van, a Volkswagen. And behind the wheel, I could see the driver was wearing a hurried expression. It was Helen Leon. <laughs> smaller every day, but there are certain things you still do. Still say what you think, you still pay for the drinks, and beach nuts the tobacco you chew. Weird ideas taking hold, kids won't do what they're told, who knows what this old world's coming to. But you keep your face to the wind, you don't quit on a friend, and beach nuts the tobacco you chew. Seems like a man's world just isn't the same anymore, but some things you can still trust, like beach nut chewing tobacco. Beech Nut just keeps on getting better. Beech Nut's a lot moister these days, with more taste, less stems. Today's Beech Nut, fresher, longer-lasting flavor. You ought to try it. Girls in bars, girls in pants, a man just don't stand a chance. But there's still ways to show them who's who. You treat your dogs with respect, you keep your traps oiled and checked. And Beech Nut's the tobacco you chew. The Zero Hour continues after this. Hello, I'd like to talk to you for a minute. This is a commercial. The product? It's in your car. Know what it is? If you're a dummy, you're sitting on it. Right. Safety belts. You know about safety belts saving lives and preventing injuries. So now I'll tell you another good thing about them. Do you like who you're riding with? <laughs> of course you do. That's <laughs> silly of me to ask. Have you done anything for each other lately? I know a very good way to show you care about each other. You do care about each other. Good. You ready? Tell each other to fasten your safety belts. I'll wait. Mm-hmm. Good. Belts on? <laughs> now, nah, don't you feel better? Don't you feel good? I do, and I'm not even in my car. Isn't that a nice way to show somebody you care? When you think about it, it's a nice way to say, I love you. This message has been brought to you by the National Safety Council and me, Carl Reiner. As soon as I saw it was Ellen Leon, I dashed out onto the road. Miss Leon! Miss Leon! Miss Leon, stop! Miss Leon, unlock the door. I'm Burton McKee. I was supposed to meet you here, Dr. Canfield and I. You have to let me in. Turn the car around. Head it out of here. What's wrong? Where's Dr. Canfield? Look, I'm not sure exactly what's wrong, but I want you to get out of this canyon until I find out. There's a man somewhere up this canyon who isn't acting rationally. I think he may have done something to Dr. Canfield. I don't know where the hell Canfield is. I can't start looking for him until I get you out of here. Oh. 
Canfield was gone when I got back to camp yesterday. He left me a note, and he signed it, John. His name is Jeremy. Well, what did the note say? Oh, something about taking a Navajo to Tignos Pass, something about a snake bite. Look, that's not the point, Miss Leon. He signed it, John. Listen. Are you wait here? Come back. Miss Leon? Sounds like a murder. What is it, a truck? Look, I'm going to find out. All right. We'll both find out. This woman, Helen Leon, had a certain Girl Scout quality about her. Delicate and yet determined. I was sure she doubted my story, but I'd expected that. Somehow, I'd have to stress the urgency of the situation without giving her further cause for alarm. It was less than 50 yards to the bend of the canyon. My hand throbbed violently every step of the way. When we reached the bend, I... I cautioned her to stay back. I peeked around the rocky point. There was a gray Land Rover parked a ways down this canyon. A cable from the winch reel on its front motor was attached to a fallen ponderosa pine. The massive trunk of the long dead tree was being swung slowly across the canyon. What is it, Dr. McKee? It looks like we walk out. What in the world is he doing? He's blocking us in with that tree. Is that the man you saw last night? The man with the wolf skin? Yes. With all the racket the winch motor was making, the man couldn't hear us walk back to Ellen's car, started up and back off. At least she hadn't asked me how I knew that this was the same man. I don't know what lie I'd have made up. I couldn't have told her that I'd seen a long machine gun barrel sticking out of the Land Rover window. Nor could I divulge the fact that I now had a pretty fair idea who the man was. The terrifying truth was I'd met him before, face to face. It was the hat that gave him away. The man operating the winch was wearing one. A black felt hat with a wide brim, with a silver concho band around the crown. It was the big Navajo from Shoemakers. Is your hand broken? No, no, I sprained my finger. But it hurts a lot. It's all right. It would feel better if you'd let me bandage it. Don't you have a first aid kit at your campsite? Look, I think it'd be better if we kept going. I want to find a place where we can climb out of here. Maybe Dr. Canfield's back by now. Maybe. Can't we just... All right. It's just up ahead. We'll need a few things anyway. Stop at the camp. Thank you. Don't mention it. Canfield wasn't there. I hadn't expected him to be, but she had. She sat glumly in the tent while I rounded up supplies. Harley, I, I filled my canteen, shoved two cans of meat into my pocket, grabbed a box of crackers in my pocket knife, then I trotted over to where my truck was and raised the hood. I could feel her watching me from behind, but I didn't turn around. Instead, I examined the engine. The spark plug wires were ripped out. Dr. McKee, really, shouldn't we have waited back there just for a little while? I'm sure Dr. Canfield will be coming right back. And if he doesn't, I'm sure this man will help us. This is absolutely insane. I'm turning the car around. What are you doing? Take your foot off of mine. You'll get us killed. Now, get this straight. I had a hard day yesterday. I was up all night. I'm tired. My hands hurt. And I'm worried about Jeremy. 
Now, you're going to behave and do as you're told. And I'm telling you again, we're going to climb out of this canyon. Look, if I'm wrong about that guy, I'll apologize. I can't take that chance now. Please. You have to trust me, Miss Leon. Better slow down. The road's getting too narrow. Bully. Wait. I saw something. What is it? Tire tracks, you see. Along the bank there. Somebody's been here. Dr. Canfield? I need to find out. Put the car over there. Now get it past the brush. Out of sight. Then what? Wait in the car. And I'll be back for you. The tire tracks told me a lot. They were obliterated along the road, but visible on the bank. That meant whoever made them had done so before last night's rain. There was only one set, and from the angle of the flattened brush, I assumed that whatever went in, it hadn't come out. At least not this way. The road stopped completely, but the deep tread marks went on. Over rocks, through the brush, and until... I could see where they were heading. There was a, a brush-covered outcropping of rock 50 feet away. Quietly, I approached... My heart was racing. It could be a trap set by the big Navajo. Slowly, very slowly, I peeked around. And saw a truck. Jeremy Canfield's camper. It was locked up tight, and the muddy streaks on the windshield suggested it hadn't been moved for a while. I looked in through a side window. No keys in the ignition. No Jeremy, either... I wheeled around and saw up on the rim rock a flash of red. I stood frozen, looking at an Indian boy wearing a bright red baseball cap sitting atop a chestnut-colored horse. The boy had a rifle in one hand. It was pointed up at the sky. We stared at each other. Neither of us moved a muscle. And then he rode off. It was like a hallucination. He quite literally disappeared. The camper compartment was locked. I found a rock and broke out the glass, reached through with my good hand, and undid the latch. The tailgate dropped open and out slid a pair of familiar boots. Jeremy Canfield's. He was still in them. I reached in and rolled him over. The great roaring in my ears returned as I stumbled back. I had seen the face of Jeremy Canfield, the bulging eyes ablaze with terror, the mouth wide open, shouting out a silent scream and rimmed with sand. You are listening to Mutual's presentation of The Zero Hour. Your American Cancer Society presents Peter Falk and Lee Grant in The Regular Checkup. Let's begin your checkup with an update of your medical history. Uh, before we do that, I've been trying to get my husband in for a checkup. Maybe if I list all the simple tests you give, he'll come. Uh, you know, I'm not counting the lady things. <laughs> I see. Well, we'll check blood pressure, take x-rays, urine analysis, blood tests, procto, electrocardiogram. Then there's neck and abdominal palpation. That's checking the neck and stomach with your fingers. You've been watching Marcus Welby? I, I heard that on a soap opera. 
<laughs> I see. Next, there's the otoscopic test. The ears, right? That's terrific. I, I pick up a, a lot of doctor stuff on TV. You certainly do. Mm -hmm. So let's get your husband in. He's afraid you'll find he's in perfect health and he won't be able to complain. <laughs> I see. <laughs> help your doctor help you with an annual checkup. Help your American Cancer Society with a generous check. We want to wipe out cancer in your lifetime. Did you see God? Well, I know him by everything you say and do. Did you say God? Well, I've seen him every time I look at you. Steak Farm Insurance and Beach Nut Chewing Tobacco. This is the Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. You have been listening to The Zero Hour, a presentation of the Mutual Broadcasting System in association with Hollywood Radio Theater. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to the Zero Hour. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.